Coming up this evening on NTD Business. Twitter is swallowing a poison pill to try to block Elon Musk's takeover. What comes next? President Biden takes another swipe at finding a new top banking regulator. We take a look at his new nominee. American exporters can send their goods abroad because Chinese ships are going back to China without loading up. Who's in control? That and much more coming up on NTD Business. Great to have you with us. Paul Graney here, live from New York City. The Twitter board isn't ready to let Elon Musk own the company. Today it adopted a plan called a poison pill to try and stop Musk from buying the company outright. Yesterday, Musk made an offer of $43 billion. A poison pill is a common way to stave off unwelcome takeovers. In this case, if anyone buys more than 15% of Twitter's stock without the board's approval, other shareholders can buy more shares at a lower price. That would dilute the value of Musk's shares. The move doesn't prevent the board from accepting Musk's offer, just makes it more expensive for him. That's if the board is willing to accept any offer at all. Is still assessing Musk's bid. Musk is Twitter's largest individual shareholder with over 9% of the company. 50% is needed for full control. Is this not doing it for the money? He wants Twitter to be a free speech platform. And joining us live is Stockton University finance professor Michael Bustler. Professor, thanks for coming on. Hi, Paul. Thanks for having me. As you know, it's my pleasure to be here. Professor, who is the upper hand here, Musk or the Twitter board? Well, it appears that the Twitter board uh, has the upper hand right now, uh, but we'll see what uh, Elon Musk's plan B is. So what did the board do? As you pointed out, a poison pill is an action that um, the uh, board would take to make purchasing Twitter less attractive. Uh, what they did was called a limited duration shareholders' rights plan, which means for, I think it's a year, um, the shareholders will be able to buy additional shares of Twitter stock at a reduced price. This will uh, increase the number of shares outstanding and make it a little more expensive for uh, uh, um, Elon Musk to be able to uh, purchase this. He still has a couple things he can do. Uh, he can try just on the open market to get more than 50% of the ownership, uh, which would give him control. He would rather take the company private uh, and being private, they have less reporting requirements, and he'd be able to do a few more things that a public corporation uh, could could not do. Another thing he can do is um, by what's called a proxy vote, get the majority of the stockholders to vote the current uh, board of directors out and put in a new board of directors that would be um, amenable to uh, Elon Musk's offer. I How likely I saw is that? How likely is that proxy vote? Um, that is an, an option that, that he can take. There's some court action that he also uh, can take. I think the proxy vote is probably the most likely because I thought I saw somebody uh, did a, a survey and said 84% of the uh, Twitter stockholders favor Elon Musk's plan. And why not? The stock was selling at $40 a share. Musk bought the 9%, shot up to over $50 a share. He's offering almost $55 a share. So stockholders think this is a pretty good thing. But Musk indeed thinks that the shareholders will be upset with the board because of this poison pill. But if you're a shareholder, would you not be happy to buy more shares at a discount? Uh, if you wanted to buy the shares, yes. But if you don't buy the shares, and not everybody's in a position to start buying more shares. So if you don't buy the shares, 
the your share of ownership will be diluted. Uh, so I'm not so sure the stockholders are going to favor this. Twitter had offered Musk a seat on the board just a few days ago. Why do you think they appear so hostile to him now? Well, uh, he, he could take that seat, but if he bought over 15, by being a member of the board of directors, he's not allowed to own over 15% of Twitter. So he would never be able to get uh, control of the company if he accepted the seat on the board, which is why he rejected it. It seems the board haven't come back with a counteroffer. Is it possible they're more interested in keeping control of the company than actually profiting from it? I believe so. It's hard to tell exactly what's in their mind, but I believe they're more fearful of uh, Musk getting control of the company and changing its formats somewhat. Many people believe that uh, Twitter has become very biased in what they allow and what they don't uh, allow. Um, and if they want to continue, the current board wants to continue to do that, they're going to have to keep uh, Musk's ownership uh, down. Uh, so we'll just have to see what, what happens and what action the board takes. Professor Michael Bostler, Stockton University. Appreciate it. Have a great weekend, Professor. Thank you, Paul. My pleasure. The most prominent person to get kicked off Twitter is former President Donald Trump. So would he come back if Musk wins out? He says he probably won't. Some conservatives had expressed hope that Musk would transform Twitter into a bastion of free speech and reinstate Trump's account. During a recent radio interview, he said he probably wouldn't have any interest in tweeting again. He says partly because he's helping set up Truth Social, that's a competing social media platform. But he also said Twitter has become, quote, very boring. He said Twitter has blocked many of the conservative voices on the platform that made discussions there interesting. Twitter, of course, has denied suppressing conservative viewpoints. And J.P. Morgan wants to build an all-electric tower in New York City as the company's new headquarters. It says it's going to be 60 stories tall, slightly taller than the Empire State Building, and it'll run completely on renewable energy. A hydroelectric plant in New York State will supply it. The building will have systems that constantly monitor air quality, as well as fitness areas, yoga rooms, even spaces for prayer and meditation, probably when the markets aren't looking so good, right? At the very top of the tower, there's going to be a conference center where you can get a full view of the city. The architecture firm behind the building, Foster & Partners, says it'll help define the modern workplace. So much for work from home. Yesterday, J.P. Morgan reported a slight a sharp decline in profits for the last quarter. That's significant because how well the big banks are doing is a sign of how well the economy is doing. And going by how the other banks are doing, it ain't looking pretty. Adidas Khan Fredrickson has more. The biggest U.S. banks all taking a profit hit. On Thursday, Wells Fargo said its profits were 21% lower than they were in the same quarter a year ago. Citi says its were 46% lower, and Goldman Sachs says its were 42% lower. We should be concerned about bank profits falling because it is a sign that the economy is slowing. Michael Bussler is a professor of finance at Stockton University. Bussler says banks are a leading indicator of what will happen in the future. The economy is starting to slow down. So lending activity has gone down, and as a result of that, banks make their money from lending. So as a result of lending going down, their profits are, are falling. Wells Fargo saw mortgage lending fall 33% from the same quarter last year. Goldman Sachs saw a 36% fall in investment banking, and a common theme throughout. The quarter was extremely volatile. Russia invaded Ukraine. Inflation rose across the globe. The Russian invasion of Ukraine and the sanctions it triggered 
unleashed an enormous supply shock on the world. The increasing risks from high inflation in the Russian-Ukraine conflict. While Wells Fargo had less exposure to Russia, Citi and Goldman Sachs were hit far more directly. Goldman Sachs took a 300 million direct hit, while Citi, the most global U.S. bank, could lose 3 billion. They're invested in Russian bonds, some Russian businesses. There are loans that have been given, obviously, to both Ukraine and Russia. Some of these are clearly not going to be paid back. Don Kaufman is the co-founder of Theotrade, an online financial education service. Kaufman adds that managing risk in an unstable environment is probably horrific for them. Colin Fredrickson, NTD News. The big banks may soon have a new sheriff to worry about. President Biden has a new pick for a top banking regulator. He said today he plans to nominate Michael Barr to be the Fed's vice chair for supervision. He'd be responsible for overseeing the biggest banks, and that's if he gets past the Senate. It's after the president's first pick, Sarah Bloom Raskin failed to get support from some Democrats. Michael Barr is a former Obama Treasury official. He helped design the Dodd-Frank financial reform law in the wake of the financial crisis. The Senate Banking Committee's top Republican, though, Pat Toomey, said he's concerned about Barr's role in defending bailouts of big banks. From 2015 to 2017, Barr was on the advisory board of Ripple. It's a cryptocurrency company now being investigated by the SEC. Biden says he'll work with the committee to move Barr's nomination forward quickly. With us is Kate Judge, professor of law at Columbia University, specializing in banking and financial regulation. Professor, thank you. Thank you for having me. Professor, why exactly is this role of vice uh, chairman for supervision so important? It was a new role that was created as part of the Dodd-Frank Act in recognition that we really needed somebody who was the point person in overseeing banks and establishing the, the regulatory agenda of the Federal Reserve. The Fed obviously is involved in a policymaking in a variety of different areas. Monetary policy appropriately gets a lot of attention, but bank regulation is absolutely key to maintaining the, the long-term health and resilience of the financial system. And so the idea is we need one person who's really charged with overseeing those operations, making sure supervision is robust, regulation is robust, and that the, the rules continue to evolve as the financial system evolves. Mr. Barr, of course, helped craft Dodd-Frank back, back in the day. It, did it benefit banks over taxpayers? Uh, the Dodd-Frank Act? No, I really think that the Dodd-Frank Act was, was really about rebalancing in the opposite direction. I think there was a concern that when you looked at 2007 and 2008, policymakers just did not have the tools available to, to really maintain the, the health of the financial system without going in and providing a lot of support for banks. And the idea is that we want to reduce the probability of the government having to go in again. And the best way to do that is making sure that we have more rigorous regulation ahead of time. So banks are better capitalized, they have more liquidity, and we have more ability to, to respond to changes in the structure of the financial system. How about the bailout aspect of the act? That was actually before Dodd-Frank. So there was a the Economic Emergency Stabilization Act of 2008 was the, the move by Congress to say, wow, we're in a really, really bad situation. And if we allow these banks to fail, we're going to have tremendous harm to the real economy, as we saw back in the Great Depression, where you really end up in a situation where I mean, unemployment already went to 10%, which was horrible, but it could have gone far higher. And so 
the aim of Dodd-Frank was to say, we never again want to be in a position of having to choose between providing support for financial institutions to take risks that they should not have taken or allowing there to be incredible harm to, to ordinary Americans and to the real economy. And so the effort of Dodd-Frank was to, to avoid putting policymakers in a situation where they had to make that type of choice. You're quite positive on Mr. Barr as a nominee. Why? Uh, I've known uh, Michael Barr for, for years. He's an academic, in addition to being a, a longtime policymaker. He's incredibly thoughtful. He's really been focused on, on trying to make sure the financial system really works for ordinary Americans uh, and trying to think about consumer protection in a robust way for a long time. He has incredible experience. And I think more than anything, uh, this position just needs to be filled. Uh, right now, we're dealing with a, a baseline that was established under the previous administration uh, that was less focused on, on ensuring the long-term health of the financial system, and I think more focused on, on trying to provide a little bit of regulatory relief. So making sure that somebody goes in is helping to, to fill all the gaps that currently exist is going to be, I think, very helpful for our entire country. Is there conflict of interest here with, with Mr. Barr's connections to Ripple and, and other financial organizations? Yeah, I mean, he hasn't been associated with Ripple for years. And I think just as importantly, there were concerns about that. I think at the time he was being considered for comptroller for the currency, there's a lot less reasons to be concerned about the types of decisions that he's going to have to make, the types of authority that he will have as a vice chair for supervision. And again, I think those those concerns were overstated to begin with, uh, but there's certainly very little reason to be concerned that he's going to be doing anything that is at all inappropriate uh, if confirmed for this role. Professor Kate Judge, Columbia University, appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. And good news for stretched wallets. Some states want to help you save money on groceries. Prices, of course, this year soaring. Here's telling you. Now, some states want to temporarily cut taxes on food sales. But sounds good, but the Tax Foundation says it may not be very helpful, especially for middle and low-income families who are pretty much getting hurt the most. The nonprofit said instead of cutting taxes, it's better to provide a grocery credit to the families, something like a one-time payment of $75, for example. Currently, 13 states across the U.S. have taxes on groceries. At the other end of the scale, luxury car maker Lamborghini, Lamborghini having its best performing quarter ever, selling over 2,500 supercars in this year's Q1. Demand is, is so high, its CEO said in a recent CNBC interview, customers now have to wait over a year to get their hands on the supercar. Previously, the normal wait time was six to nine months. The car maker expects its customer base to get younger too, predicting a whopping 70% of its buyers to be under the age of 40 in just a couple of years. Lamborghini is also planning to enter the electric car arena for the first time by releasing its hybrid V12 model sometime next year. And the United States relies on Chinese shipping carriers to deliver U.S. exports. But it seems some Chinese shipping companies may not want to do that anymore. That's leaving some American businesses out to dry. Anthony's Don Ma has the details. Chinese shipping companies are hurting American small businesses. Chinese carriers like Costco and OOCL are shipping more empty containers out of the U.S. than loaded ones. Logistics and supply chain expert Ross Kennedy tells me this has a very negative impact on American exporters. 
when they can't actually get the goods in the containers moving overseas. When they're not able to meet their contractual obligations and you'll see uh, cash flow issues where uh, because they can't deliver a product they've already bought overseas, uh, then they can't get paid on it for when it gets delivered overseas. Uh, and then they can't buy more inventory, thus they can't make more sales. So it's really a, a pretty rapid death spiral that can happen to these companies. CNBC found in 2021, both Costco and OOCL shipped twice as much empty containers out of the U.S. as they did in 2020. So why are the Chinese carriers doing this? Well, because they make more money shipping goods to the U.S. than from the U.S. So what they're doing is instead of loading U.S. exports onto containers, which takes time and effort, they're just shipping empty ones back overseas. It's that import side that the carriers make most of their money from, but so you're talking a significantly more profitable uh, import stream. And uh, now because of that, the impetus is get as many empties on board and back overseas as possible, and that has a real negative impact on U.S. exporters. CNBC found that it is about 15 times more profitable for the Chinese carriers to move imports to the U.S. than exports from the U.S. The U.S. is dependent on the Chinese carriers to ship exports out of the country. If the Chinese companies don't do it, small American businesses that depend on exports could go out of business in a span of months. Cash flow is typically very, very tight uh, in, in the uh, commodities game, whether it's uh, lumber or food products or uh, agribusiness products. Um, so yeah, it's uh, it, it, very quickly you can find yourself upside down in a cash situation. And In response to the report, Senator John Thune of South Dakota says Congress should pass new legislation to hold these carriers accountable. Don Ma, NTD News. In China, your home can just be confiscated. On Thursday, Shanghai authorities tried to seize residents' apartment buildings and use them for temporary quarantine centers. Shanghai is facing a serious virus situation right now, so authorities say they're in need of quarantine facilities. But of course, locals weren't happy about authorities taking their homes. Online footage shows protests and then a clash erupting between residents and authorities number of protests have cropped up in Shanghai recently as residents grow increasingly frustrated with the city's zero-COVID lockdown restrictions. And the FBI believes North Korean hackers stole more than $600 million worth of cryptocurrency from a video gaming company. Federal investigators revealed North Korean cyber criminals robbed a computer network used by Axie Infinity. The online game allows players to earn Ethereum cryptocurrency. The FBI alleges that on March 29th, a North Korean proxy called Lazarus Group saw, stole the player's digital currency. All told, it is believed Lazarus Group has stolen $1.75 billion worth of cryptocurrency itself in recent years. It's believed North Korea is using all the ill-gotten funds to help fund its nuclear weapons program. Thursday, the U.S. Treasury Department sanctions Lazarus Group Wallet or Crypto Vault as punishment for the latest hack. It's still to come. Stay with us. TikTok testing a dislike button for comments to allow users to leave more feedback. Luxury hot chocolate creating a stir in London. Shops are featuring single origin cocoa, variety of flavors, and take home products. That and more coming up on NTD Business.
Welcome back. Social media site TikTok is looking at a way for users to leave more feedback on comments left on videos. This week, the social media site announced it's testing a, a dislike button to individual comments. TikTok says users can click on the button to privately flag posts they find, quote, irrelevant or inappropriate. Creators and other users will not be able to see the dislikes. Only the person who disliked the comment can see it, and TikTok, of course. TikTok says it was to avoid creating ill feelings between users while allowing users to feel more in control over their posts. After the testing phase, the company says it will decide on whether to roll out the feature in the coming weeks. Meanwhile, TikTok is getting more competition from YouTube. It's adding features that have proven popular with TikTok users. YouTube's giving creators a new option to incorporate short video segments from another user's YouTube video or shorts video when creating new shorts content. Users will be able to sample one to five second video segments from any eligible video and edit it into their own shorts video. The tool builds on an audio remixing option YouTube added last year that allowed creators to sample audio from other videos into their own shorts, a style TikTok is famous for. And many of us have worked four days this week, not all of us. It's down to the Good Friday holiday. But there's a French company for which every week is a four-day work week. It says it's been a welcome change with increased productivity. Anthony's Andrew Thomas has more. Thousands of parcels leave this LDLC French logistics center every day. Workers were used to clocking in and out every weekday. But one year ago, the work week was shortened from five days to four, and employees kept the same salary. Johan Peters enjoys the extra weekday off. The days are not much longer. Maybe they can be a bit more intense because we do have more work on the days at work. But this is largely compensated by the fact that we have a day off. And so when you come into work after your day off, you're much, much more rested and more efficient operationally. LDLC boss Laurent de la Clergier had a feeling the change would work. A year later, LDLC, which sells consumer technology, has increased its annual profits by 40% without hiring any extra staff. The secret, he said, is that the approximately 1,000 people his firm employs feel trusted, empowered, and appreciated. And this has made them more productive. One could think that I managed to turn lead into gold. I don't think that's the case. I think that when you put well-being into the workplace, when you care for your teams, when you concentrate on that, in fact, you gain in productivity. The equation for productivity isn't simply just a number of hours worked. As the world emerges from a pandemic, companies and workers around the world are considering the shortened work week. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. We can only dream. And hot chocolate with a sprinkle of marshmallows used to be a simple treat. Now customers in London are seeking luxury hot chocolate with high-grade ingredients. Anthony Sancher Thomas says this one too. 2022 is all about high-end hot chocolate. Luxury chocolate drink maker Noops wants to offer its customers premium products and a lot of variety. 
Well, first of all, I'm using real chocolate, not powder or technically what's called compound chocolate. It's real chocolate and with a whole range of percentages. So from a 28% white chocolate, which is very sweet, all the way up to 100%. Across the walls of his stores, there are single origin hot chocolates from countries such as Venezuela, Ecuador and Peru. Noob says he has over 20 different chocolates using around six different milks and 22 different ingredients. Noobs also sells the products required to make similar drinks at home. They're coming into the shop and they want to recreate that experience they have. Um, and also a lot of people are bought with a coffee offering. Um, it's a wonderful energy boost, caffeine boost in the morning. I have a hot chocolate instead of a coffee. Across town, owner of Copperhouse Chocolate, Juliette Sampson, is also enjoying the boom in premium hot chocolate drinkers. As a vegan, she offers only drinks that are dairy-free and largely plant-based. Sampson also uses single-origin chocolate sourced from small producers from around the world. If you use higher quality chocolate, then you don't need so much sugar, because often sugar is used to cover up bitter beans. Um, and it's really nice with the single origins being able to taste the different flavour notes and all the different origins, um, much similar to wine where you've got wine tasting, you can taste all the different regions and it's the same with chocolate. Samson focuses on ethical sourcing and quality and follows the journey of the cocoa she buys all the way from the farm to the UK. Our chocolate is traceable, we like to make sure we know where it's come from, um, not just the country because it's easy to know a country but it can still be bulk source from that country and you don't really know all the details. Um, so traceable, like we're in contact with the producers and we want to know details on the farm. Like Noops, Samson is witnessing a boom in the premium hot chocolate industry right now. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. As the latest from the NTD business team and myself, Paul Graney. Cancel catch NTD evening news. That's with Stephanie Cox at 6.30 p.m. Eastern. Follow me on Twitter, too, if you're there. For NTD Business, it's all for this week. Thank you so much for watching. Have a great weekend. We'll see you Monday.